a word to a handful of you. It's 10 to 15 degrees warmer in the balcony if an usher didn't tell you. So let me play Bob Barker on Price is Right and just say, come on down uh, if you'd like to. Of course, the choice is yours. I want to begin today with an ugly word. In fact, a, a word that's probably one of the ugliest words in the English language. If um, it's just something that you don't want to be, and in fact, if somebody accuses you of being this, you get defensive. Not just defensive, but like ugly defensive. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Just ugly defensive. Here is the word. Ungrateful. And here's the thing about this word, about this reality. You can't see it in the mirror. Fear, you can see fear nervousness a lot of times you can see that can't you insecurity i believe you can see insecurity anger there's that vein that pops from your neck okay but ungrateful you can't really see it in fact i would inform you that after many 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 years of pastoral counseling like you guys you know what you do i know what i do and i'm a pastor and after many many years of pastoral counseling i've had people sit down with me and they have confessed all manner of sin but i've never heard anybody say i'm ungrateful think about that because if someone says and by the way we're, we're southern people most of us anyway all right southern people southern pride we're mississippian so we would never accuse someone to their face of being ungrateful well, I mean, our kids, we do our kids, but we wouldn't accuse another adult to their face, but we'll talk about them behind their back and say, they're so ungrateful. But why do you get so ugly defensive when you feel like someone has issued that charge against you? Because it's like you, you don't have feelings. You don't feel something. And the necessary, at times it seems, defensive posture is, oh, I have feelings, of gratefulness. I've been thinking about gratefulness, but it hasn't been expressed. And we can live a big part. Look, you can live a big part of your life and not really know it and not really know what it's doing to you and your most significant relationships. And it shrinks and shrivels you and reduces those relationships in your life. There are some, uh, let's keep the ugly word up, one of the ugliest words in the English language, but, but there are some corollaries to it. Think about a few of these words. They're spiritual diseases that disconnect us from the most primal thing about us. One is apathy, and apathy says uh, there's no longer anything interesting here. Uh, the world, it, it's a view of the world that's flat and static. The world is kind of finished. There's nothing else needed. My creative contribution is not here, needed here. I can be apathetic because there's nothing interesting here. There's a deeper component to that, and it's cynicism. And cynicism be- goes beyond apathy. While apathy says there's nothing interesting here, Cynicism says there's nothing new here. A cynic is someone who has seen it all or done it all, or at least they think they have. It's sort of the maxim of been there, done that. And the view of the world is a negative one. These are the people that try to shoot down every new idea. These are the people that push their negativity. The, The cynical one is the one who holds things at a distance. Why? Because you can't be hurt if you hold something at a distance. And from the distance, we analyze and we mock 
and we bring out everything negative in the situation. Often the cynical person comes across as the witty one, as the wise one, the one that's cracking the jokes. But more often than not, the cynic is not the wise and witty one. The cynic is the wounded one. And because of that pain, perhaps the person has attempted something and it went belly up or they were booed off the stage. And this cynical person, cynicism takes root and the the mechanism of survival is hold everything at a distance. Crack jokes, pop one-liners, talk about how you know everything and nitpick everything and hold it at a distance, analyzing and mocking it all. But the source is pain. And so while apathy says there's nothing interesting here, cynicism says there's nothing new here, there's a deeper level of it all, and it's despair. And despair at its lowest can say there's nothing left for me here. Despair, one writer said, is a dull thud in the heart. And despair at its lowest is probably why in the year 2018, 911 emergency operators have been called to Hollywood homes at least once a month. There's just nothing new for me here. And so this this apathy, this cynicism, this despair, they're diseases that disconnect us from what's most primal about us and what is most primal about you. Any guesses? The most primal thing about you is that you are. The most primal thing about you is that you are here. And I wonder, because you're here, are you grateful? Are you glad to be here. Did anybody breathe just a minute ago? Can we do it together? Just take a deep breath. Inhale if you would. (sighs) Exhale, that's necessary. That is a gift. How primal is that? To say, I don't want to be disconnected. I don't want to be cut off from this. And here's what I want to say to the heart that maybe is apathetic, cynical, or borderline in despair. To the ungrateful heart, appreciation, Jesus taught, without expression is rejection. Now somebody needs to hear that this Thanksgiving week. Appreciation without expression equals rejection. I bet a good number of you, at least half of you, know a story that Jesus told famously in Luke 17. It's the only account of it. And Jesus heals ten lepers. And nine of them, I bet they felt appreciation. I bet they thought appreciation. I bet they told somebody how they had been healed. But only one of them remarkably returned to Jesus. Here's how he finished this great story. He says, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Jesus, the best teacher of all time, the best question asker of all time. Usually those two are associated. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Three back-to-back questions. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Keep it up, Emmy, if you would. Was no one found to return and give praise? Here's a point that just begs to be stated. It's this. We need to be returners. Are you? We need to be returners willing to go back to those who enabled us to go forward. And here's what's happening. I can't help but think of the kids or even young adults who drown themselves in a bottle or go see a counselor or therapist or a pastor who have a parent. Maybe they thought about appreciation. Maybe they felt appreciation but they didn't know how to express 
the appreciation. And if you're not a good expresser, can I tell you today in love, go get help and practice. Like practice. How did you get good? If you're not good at appreciation, what are you good at? All right? Isolate what you're good at right now in your mind. How'd you get good at that? Natural gifting, probably. Work, yeah. Repetition, practice, yeah, probably all that. Do that with expression. Oh, the number of kids. It's common for a mom to dote, and if you overdote, that's not healthy, trust me. And it's common with a doting mom to have a dad who's detached. Can I just say, men, I'm a man, I'm talking to you. Our kids, our daughters and our sons need us to express appreciation to them. They need to be blessed by their dads. A lot of dads are distant and detached and say, well, there's a doting mom. She'll be the unconditional love person and I'll be the one that they have to work hard to gain my approval. You may feel from time to time appreciation for your child, but appreciation without expression is interpreted as rejection and a whole bunch of us are walking around with that rejection. I can't help but think of the marriages. The marriages in this room that need a healthy dose of expression. The relationships between friends and siblings to speak those words out. A grateful person, you know this, sees what is good. There's a Latin word for it. It's this. It's bene. It's kind of a funny word. I'm going to sort of pronounce it closely because I'm going to do something creative with it. But bene, it's not something you get with powdered sugar on it in New Orleans. But here's a bene, it's a Latin word for good. And to be a grateful person, to move away from an ungrateful heart, that ugly quality that you can't see in the mirror, that you don't know that it's corrosive to your life, to be a grateful person is to be able to see what is good. And there are three components, taking this Latin word, there are three components of recognizing what is good. The first is benefits. Everybody in the room, young and old, probably you get this word, right? The benefits. Our uh, couple led us today. Aren't they cute? By the way, they're in college. They led us in worship. They're so cute, these college students. Don't clap because they'll get a big head. But they led us just a moment ago and bless the Lord. Uh, the, the dude's going, yeah, yeah, I'm cute. Thumbs up to me, yeah. Uh, they led us and bless the Lord, oh my soul. That is in the scripture a few times. Once it's found in Psalm 103 and it says, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Does anybody know the next line? And do not forget all of his benefits. Anybody know the next line? It says, bless the Lord, oh my soul, do not forget all of his benefits. He who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases and rescues your life, redeems your life from the pit and crowns your head with love and compassion and satisfies your soul with deep deep desires. What are the benefits? What are the benefits that God gives? Do you know them? Anybody experiencing them today? From what has God forgiven you? Jesus taught those who love much, they know they've been forgiven much. Are we too religious? Are we too too proud of ourselves, too pious? Or can we say today, man, I've been redeemed. I've been rescued from a pit. Anybody been rescued from a pit? Man, if I was left to my own, I would wallow in sin. Nobody raised their hand. Everybody should have raised their hand. How many of you have been rescued from a pit, huh? Yeah, you can say it, man. The benefits, you have been forgiven all your sins. Let's be careful here. You've been healed of all your diseases. He heals now. He heals today. We've seen it in the life of our church recently. But he might decide of the ultimate healing. But from what has God healed you from? 
He rescues you and redeems and lifts you up, heals and forgives and satisfied. Anybody have a desire satisfied recently? Even in the midst of something difficult. I have a friend who's walking through like seven difficult things. And yet he speaks to me about a soul deeply satisfied with some other desires. And that's what he does. Bene, good, Latin for good. There are benefits. There's a benefactor. And the benefactor lets view him, lets view the benefactor as God. God is the one who gives the good. He produces the good. You can see the word factor is in factory. I don't want to give you a Santa Claus view of God this morning, but you can picture God as being the factory worker of the good. And he gives good. He doles it out and dispenses it to those who love him, who follow him. God is the benefactor. And you and I, I stand before you today saying, we are the beneficiaries. Here's what an early follower of Jesus said. And when it's hard and dark, and it is for some of you today, he said this, follow Jesus. He says, do it this way. All right? Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in every circumstance. Nod your head if you've heard that verse before. Nod your head if it's on a coffee cup somewhere. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Say it again. Rejoice always. Pray continually and give thanks in every circumstance. And he goes on to say that this is God's will for you. The idea in the original Greek language of the New Testament is that this is God's very best plan. There are a couple of plans. One is the world's way and one is God's way. And you can live with gratitude. You can go that route or you can live the other way, the ugly, corrosive way. But be careful. As you'll fall in an ungrateful heart, you can fall into apathy and cynicism and potentially despair. It cuts you off from what's true about you. You are here. You are breathing. Your heart is going to beat about 108,000 times today, the cardiologists say. Thank God for that. Rejoice always. Pray continually and give thanks in every single circumstance. What today, what today can you be thankful for? I want you to turn to John chapter 6. We're going to look at this passage in just a moment. John chapter 6, we're going to put it up. We're going to, don't put it up yet, Emmy, but we'll look at verses 5 through 13. We'll read from the ESV. But to be thankful, think about this idea of being thankful. Now, I see some generations in the room. I see parents with kids of different ages, a lot of kids down the hallway. But when we think of being thankful, we think of sort of our version. And our version is, yeah, be thankful and sure, express it. But we think of it in terms of being proper or being polite or with some sort of pop psychology. We say to our kids when someone does something for them, what do you... What do you say to the nice man? We always bend down like they get on their level. What do you say to the nice man? We want to be heard. We want them to, to, we want them to be thankful people. What do you say to the night? What do you say to grandma for her lima bean casserole? What do you, what do you say? Say, say thanks. We're going to throw it away, but say thanks. Pretend, okay? Because we're hypocrites. Pretend that you're grateful. Nobody's grateful for that casserole, but pretend that you are. What do you say? What do you say? But Jesus goes beyond that. Sure, he wants you to be polite and to be proper. And sure, it's better to have some level of positivity 
and pop psychology than to be a negative nitpicker. But Jesus says to be grateful. To be grateful because it's a change of perspective. It's this life-altering reality. It's an outlook. What do you, what is outlook? Outlook is what you see when you look out. And today I ask you, when you look out, what do you see? What's your outlook? Several years ago, when some of us were out west, we were just kind of doing the west coast thing. And we went backpacking. We went up into the Pacific Northwest. And if if you know this, Pacific Northwest is a very different climate than where we are. uh, The opposite in many ways. And we were excited to ascend up this mountain with our like 40 pounds on our back. And there were a few friends with me. We were just pumped as we began to make our way and began to observe the scenery that was so breathtaking. It began to rain. And the rain turned into some heavier rain and we got soaked. And we were honestly very frustrated by this. And we began to voice our displeasure with the rain. We like to think that we're tough and rugged, but we were growing soft very quickly as we were soaked. And we stopped for lunch in one of these trails and we bumped into some people, none of them from Mississippi. And we, we were talking and we were looking at a forecast. In the next two to three days, it was definitive that it would be heavy rain. And there was this hiker, this backpacker that was coming down. He was coming down from the trail that we were about to go up. And he overheard us, a nosy fella. And he said, don't go back. Don't return. The hike is fantastic. He heard us gripe about the rain. And he said, oh, this, the rain is what you want. The waterfalls will be lush. The valley will be extra green. The view will be grand. And oh, by the way, there are tree canopies along the way to give you dry spells. Don't return. It's the rain that gives it life. And in that moment, I thought, sort of a Messiah figure in the moment. And how that can be a parallel to us, whether we want to move forward into a bold, brighter, better vision of the future? Do we want to keep on climbing and see what's beautiful, to see what God has made ahead of us? Or do we want to let the discomfort and the pain and the fear of how bad it could be make us turn around and seek a warm hotel bed? The very thing he was saying to us can be true of us spiritually. The rain. The thing you're afraid of, the thing that makes you want to turn around and quit is could be, it could be the very thing that's making it beautiful, that's bringing life to it. And what green valleys and what grand views you might miss if you turn around. How can it be, can it be that you could live a life that says, I will rejoice always. I will pray continually. And I will give thanks in every yea, even in this circumstance. John chapter 6, a story about bread. Jesus, by the way, context, keep it up. Jesus is uh, ascended the Sea of Galilee. His poll numbers are very high. Popularity is at a pinnacle. The crowds are following in him. And this is a moment in his life. Lifting up his eyes then... And seeing here, we said, a large crowd was coming toward him. That's what people do when you're popular. Jesus said to Philip, 
Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Strategically, he asked Philip. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. That's so Jesus-like, isn't it? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Practical Philip. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had what? Given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. In this strategic nature of Jesus asking Philip, why did he ask Philip? He knew where Philip was from. Luke's account of this same story uh, teaches us that Philip was from Bethsaida. And there he knew, he knew, if anybody knew where there there would be food, he would know where the In-N-Out burger was, the Chick-fil-A. He would know how fast the Chick-fil-A drive-thru is, how faster it is than McDonald's. Philip was aware of what was happening. But the truth is, the truth of that is that Philip knew that about 70% of people at the time hovered in the poverty realm. That about 70% of the people struggled in want to get the basics of food and water that they needed. And in this Roman culture, the wealthy wanted to maintain. That's what the wealthy want to do. They want to maintain the status quo. They want to maintain the social order. And the poor had this burdensome indebtedness to the wealthy. And the wealthy wanted to keep them at bay and maintain what they had. And Philip knew in a poverty-riddled mountainside that you don't go and get food, buy food for thousands of strange people when you're struggling to buy food for yourself and your family. And you see, Philip is very practical. Any practical people in the house? Some of you, you're just real practical, just realistic. Just see it. It's science. It's math. There's no art, no mystery, no romance. It's just, you're just practical. Like, what do you see? What can happen here? End of story. Logical, linear, rational. And that's Philip. And Philip just states it like it is. And he speaks from want. But you ever seen two people looking out the same window? It's the same setting, but two people see something different. And that's what Jesus wants to teach some hearts that are ready for it this morning because Andrew looks out. And let me put it this way. Philip, where Philip sees want, Andrew sees wonder. Same scenario. All right, so I want to elevate you for a moment. Give me a moment. I know you're going to go back into your world, your family, your home, your football, your stuff. Just give me a moment. Elevate your thinking. Past your problems. Do you just see things practically? Do you just look at things from your point of scarcity and limit? Or do you see see the possibilities? Not long ago, I was on a flight and I noticed that my personal television wasn't working in front of me, okay? So we're entering into the sermon illustration that involves first world problems. So my personal television uh, doesn't 
work and I make multiple attempts. Uh, those of you know, I'm very mechanically talented and even a guy as rich as I am, I was not able to fix the television and I just struggled with it. And what did I do? I'm a pastor, right? I responded in a godly way. Anybody? Anybody believe that? No? Okay, good. I, I got frustrated and I, I had thoughts and I don't know if they were expressed by any uh, or any of my seatmates overheard me, but I was really incredibly frustrated. I began to think things internally. I began to think things like, um, you know, I paid for this ticket. I deserve this television to work. Other people's television works. I am entitled to watch three hours of Friends on this flight. And then it hit me. Don't you hate it when it hits you? It hit me. Leave the broken television alone and look out the window. And I did. And I saw the Sierras at sunset. And I thought, here I am. 500 miles per hour in a shiny metal tube, 30,000 feet above the earth's surface. And I, and I had a cushion seat. And I was focused on a broken television. Leave the broken television and look out the window. And can I say, if you've never seen the Sierras, if you've never seen the Sierras at sunset, you've seen things I haven't seen, but it was all inspiring, trust me. There is this sense of wonder. And so Jesus gives us in this story two dudes that he loved, two followers of him, two people that wanted to be on point and on purpose, but one saw want and one saw wonder. And John gives us a couple of important details uh, in this story about the bread and the fish. The loaves were made of barley and the fish were small. Now, what do we know about Mediterranean barley back in the day. It was the poor man's bread. It was the lowest of the lows on the bread pole. Um, in Jewish Hebrew tradition, there were uh, many, many offerings, offerings for people's uh, sin, sin offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings. You've read maybe about some of this historically. But in, these, in the Hebrew tradition, these offerings were made uh, in times of praise and worship, in times to mark a season or important stage of life. And as I mentioned a moment ago, to uh, confess a sin, to get right with God. And these offerings were made of typically a meat and then some sort of compound with flour, wine, and oil. And in this particular Jewish tradition, um, when a man was caught in adultery, to make amends for that, um, women were mostly put to death, but men were to make an amends and they were to make this offering. And in this offering, uh, they, it was specific to the Jewish tradition that the flour is to be made of barley. So you have in this story the poor man's bread and adultery was thought of as, of course, an, um, an act of an animal. It's an uh, impulsive act, animalistic act. And so it was that the food of the animals, the poor man's bread. And yet into this, and by the way, let me say the fish were small. Some scholars have speculated a little bit with some realm of educated guests. They've said that you're probably looking at a six centimeter type of sardine. And so, so mundane... Andrew looks at this with wonder. And I would ask you, have you ever been able to do that? Have you ever been at a rooted, grounded, blessed spiritual place where you were able to look at something, even if 
other people around you were not. You were able to look at something and say, that's not much. But what could God do? Thank you. It's not much. But what could God do? See, when Jesus gave thanks, remember I said it's not to be proper or to be polite or some realm of popular um, pop psychology. It's a reality-altering, life-changing bent of the heart. And Jesus, the Scripture tells us, John 26, he gave thanks the night before his death. You know, when we do communion here the final Sunday of each month, we often quote that where Jesus gave thanks. He broke the bread and gave thanks on the night before his death. Did Jesus know what's coming? He willingly offered his life, the bread of life he laid down. He gave thanks before that. Jesus in John 11, before he was to say, not I'm the bread of life, before he was going to say, I'm the resurrection of life, he showed up in great pain and personal turmoil with his best friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Lazarus was dead and he had been dead for several days. In the King James Version, you got to love King Jimmy, says, behold, he stinketh. And Jesus shows up in the midst of this pain and loss and he sees broken hearts of people that he loved. Have you seen that recently? There's someone that you love and their heart is broken. And Jesus, Scripture tells us, before, before the Father did his thing, he gave thanks. Before his death, before great pain and personal loss. And here in this story, don't miss this in John chapter 6. We just read it. But Jesus gives thanks to the Father first. Now, I would put myself in Jesus' sandals and I would say, I would not be prone to do that. I would be prone to wait. I would be prone to say, mm, mm, there's a lot to worry about here because it doesn't add up and we don't have enough. And there is no way I'm going to get out in front and thank God first because this could be really embarrassing if he doesn't show up. Are you in a situation where you can trust God that way now? As a leader here over and beyond meeting budget, I'm trusting God to bring $600,000 to our community center in the parking lot behind me. So far, I've raised about five hundred, dollars So the gap is great. I've got six centimeter sardines, right? And some poor man's bread in the basket. But like, I just told, I told Emily Harden, didn't I, this week, I said, Emily, I just had this peace that God's going to provide. Didn't I tell you that? Yes. I said, I just had this peace that God's going to provide, that we're going to see this thing transformed. We're going to begin to mentor and impact the lives of our neighborhood like never before. But I had this peace to go first and say, thank you, God, even though we're not even anywhere near it. I just had this sense that he's going to provide. But what if he doesn't? Like I've just gone public. I didn't just tell Emily in the office. I'm telling all of you, oh, my goodness, how embarrassed am I going to be? What failure awaits me? And two thoughts there. Number one, yeah, it's going to be embarrassing. Yeah, it's going to represent failure, but it won't be the first time, right? Anybody failed? Like, I fail a lot. Thank you, Joe, for that. I see that hand. How many of you fail? Joe's willing to admit it. Are you willing to fail? Are you willing to go first and thank God, even if you don't see it yet? You sense that he wants to do it, and you say, thank you, God. You are going to do this. And Jesus was able to give thanks in that very scenario. Notice that Jesus, in the middle of the story, 
as I round toward home, notice that Jesus, in this story, puts a boy in the middle of it. Why a boy? Any guesses? Anybody want to guess there's a boy? I think it's important because a little boy like a little girl represents for us wonder. Have you seen a little baby girl looking at her hands and the intricacies that she can make her fingers do that? And you've looked at her eyes. Have you seen a little boy inspect a strange bug or blow a bubble? Have you held a little toddler and walked out into an autumn night sky and seen a little one look up at a harvest moon and call it out by name? Have you been on the beach and seen a little toddler running up and down the sandy shores and looking at a kite that's flipping itself into the wind and you see the wonder? You see an adult is guided by knowledge, but a child is led by wonder. And some of you, Some of you have the privilege of seeing this at Christmas if you'll see it. There will be on your floor a little, let's say, a little girl. And she's looking at that Christmas tree that glistens and glows. And she's wearing footed pajamas because the story is a whole lot cuter if she's wearing footed pajamas. Like Susan, I get out old pictures of our kids because they're growing up really fast now. And I see them in footed pajamas and it just, it just slays me. Like I fall down and convulse because of footed pajamas. But that little girl that you're picturing and maybe as a kid or grandkid, you'll see her on the floor and she's looking at the tree. And she's not guided by knowledge. She's led by wonder. It's warm and it glistens and glows and that's enough. And somewhere behind her is a dad thinking about her bedtime. And because he's a stubborn man, he's not willing to admit that he took the family all around town to save $1.99 on that Christmas tree. He wasted seven bucks in gas, but he won't admit it because he's a man. And he can tell you the cost of the tree. He's already worried about when the needles will go dry and it'll have to be thrown out. And he can tell you the height. And that little girl, she can't tell you what kind of tree it is. She can't tell you how much it costs. She's not worried about when the needles go out. It just glistens and it glows. And she's led by wonder. If there's any mistaking where I might be going with this and where this story is pointing us, Jesus made it really clear in Matthew 18 when he looked at religious people and he said, unless your religion exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, people that kept the law perfectly, Unless you're like a little child, you don't have access to God's authentic kingdom. And so he puts in front of us a little boy. When you look out your window, do you see want or wonder? Honestly, as I study thankfulness this week, and I study Jesus, the one that I want to follow, I hope I'm the kind of guy, if I know it's coming and I might not, it could be sudden. Some of you have wishes about my death, but if I see it coming, I want to be able to say thanks the night before, right before. Thanks. And when I experience personal loss or see someone that I deeply love and I'm grieved by it, and I hadn't seen the miracle yet, I want to be able to say thanks in that. When I'm leading a church or organization, leading my family, and oh, by the way, leading myself, and that might be the hardest. And I'm trusting Him with something that I believe that He's called us to. Can I say thanks then? Can I say thanks like Jesus first? 
Appreciation without expression is rejection. Would you be willing to return to the one who enabled you to move forward? you got to go back to say thanks. Today in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and the altar is going to be open. And listen to me, not trying to be showy or manipulative, but I, I couldn't help, I can't help but think that some of you would be blessed. You would honor God if you came to this altar and knelt down to say thanks. And if it's hard, because look, some of us, for some of us, man, I, I love you. And gratitude is like close to the surface. It's just easy because you're blessed. But for some of you, it's really hard. It's really hard because that thing doesn't seem to be moving. And that's the thing that you think, I should turn around. Because I'm soaking wet, I'm frustrated, and there could be a warm hotel bed behind me. But that could be the very thing, that rain could be the very thing where God could say, the, the, the hike is fantastic. The waterfalls will be lush. Give me a chance. Give me a chance. Give it a shot. Keep going. The waterfalls will be lush. The valley will be green. The views will be grand. And oh, by the way, along the way, when it really hurts, I will give you some canopies to help keep you dry. But you'll get wet. And it'll be steep and hard. Because it's life. And Jesus never promised anything different. And the very thing, the very thing that you think is making you turn around, tempting you to turn around, is the very thing that he will use to give you life. So stand and let me say this, if you would stand. Jesus laid it down and look what he said in John 6, skip over one verse, John 6, 51, at the end of this great line of scripture, I am the living bread, not the barley, not the poor man's bread, not the food of the animals, but I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is saying, I will lay down my life for yours. And in love, it is worth it. Father, help us to be a people of thanks. When we look out, we see something. Everybody in the room has an outlook. Everybody is looking out. But what do we see? Do we see want or do we see wonder? Lord, protect us from our apathy and cynicism and our despair. Move us away from this ugly word, ungrateful. In Jesus we pray, amen. You come today and kneel at the altar if you want to give thanks. We'll be here to pray over you about something specific. Let's honor.